Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, all. Just a quick note before we begin. This episode is an interview with a bankruptcy expert, Adam Levitin, and an insolvency expert, Wasi Lawyer. It's an incredible conversation on how the bankruptcies of Three Arrows Capital, Celsius, and Voyager will go down. Just wanted to note that we recorded before Friday afternoon, which is when FTX offered to allow Voyager customers who opt into the program access to some of their funds early, as long as they create FTX accounts. So, in case you're wondering why we don't discuss this proposal, that's why. However, in discussing it post-show, Wasi Lawyer said it was an incredibly shrewd move and believes that it's a signal that Sam Bankman-Fried thinks the crypto markets have bottomed. Otherwise, enjoy this incredibly illuminating discussion of how the 3AC, Celsius, and Voyager bankruptcies will go down. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the July 26th, 2022 episode of Unchained. Every other week, Unchained hosts The Chopping Block, where crypto insiders Haseeb Karashi, Tom Schmidt, Robert Leshner, and Tarun Chitra chop it up about the latest news in the digital asset industry. The next episode is for you Night Owls, streaming Wednesday, July 27th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time on youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast. Be sure to tune in then. Oasis Network is one of the fastest growing layer one blockchains designed to support privacy, speed, and scalability in Web3. Learn more and join the community at oasisprotocol.org. Harness the full power of the Avalanche Network with Core, your new Web3 command center. Built by Ava Labs, Core is more than just a wallet. It's a non-custodial browser extension engineered for users to seamlessly and securely experience Web3 like never before. Explore Avalanche dApps, NFTs, bridges, subnets, and more today. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA, link in the description. Today's topic is the bankruptcies of Celsius, Voyager, and Three Arrows Capital. Here to discuss are Wasi Lawyer, a hentai anime penguin in a suit, I mean, a lawyer specializing in restructuring and insolvency, and Adam Levitin, Georgetown Law Professor and Principal at Gordian Crypto Advisors. Welcome, Wasi Lawyer and Adam. Hello, it's good to be here today. Hi, everyone. It's good to be here today as not Darth Vader. <laughs> We're just going to dive right into what appears to be the meatiest issue, and that is something called custodial funds. Why don't you just define what that is for the listeners and why this is such a big issue in, I think, particularly in Celsius and the Voyager cases? Yeah, sure. I think the point about custody funds has been has been thrown around a lot recently because 
Well, when you've deposited assets into a company or a bank that has failed, I think what you want is you want a custody relationship, because <clears throat> when you when you when something's in custody, the title to to that asset doesn't actually pass over to the to the, the company you have deposited it with. So what what that means is that when the company goes into insolvency, those assets are segregated and it doesn't go into the general pool to pay back all other unsecured creditors. So you get uh, well, at least those that have assets in custody would be able to get those assets back. So I think that the starting point here is a question of what is what is this stuff? Right? So you have customers who placed funds with, say, Celsius or Voyager. And the question is, whose property are those funds? Do they remain property of the customer or are they property of Celsius or Voyager? And if they are property of Celsius or Voyager then the customer has a claim in the bankruptcy. The customer is just a creditor and is going to get treated differently in the bankruptcy than if it's the customer's property. Because if it is actually the customer's property, it will actually ultimately get returned to the customer. How fast? That's, you know, there may be a little bit of a delay, but the customer will get the property back if it's the customer's property. And this is going to be one of the big questions in both Celsius and Voyager's bankruptcy. And it may be different answers in each bankruptcy, and it may there may be different answers for different groups or types of relationships. So for Celsius, for example, it has the earned product, and the answer there may be different than with Celsius's custody wallet. So just to be clear, the earned product is like an interest-earning product? Exactly. And with earn Celsius's terms and conditions is uh, quite clear that you're making if you're using earn you're making a loan to Celsius. There's on for earn I really don't think there's a lot of ambiguity that it's not customer property. For the other for the custody wallet that's where I think it's much trickier. Oh, and so the the custody wallet is essentially like Celsius just storing your assets and then it gets pulled and then it's harder to make a claim that you have specific funds in there. Exactly. Um, Laura, I think the equivalent is depositing assets into a safety deposit box and depositing it into a bank. I think that's probably a good parallel. I think that's, I think that's right. The, 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 when you think of a safe deposit box, that's what we, we call a bailment. It's like when you uh, check your coat with a, with a coat check valet or you give your car to the parking valet. It's not the parking valet's car. It's still your car. The parking valet you know, is supposed to park it and do nothing else with it. Not take it, not take it for a joy ride. The problem is if the parking valet has taken it for a joy ride and the car gets totaled, at that point, you're a creditor of the parking valet. And there may be a bit of an element of that going on in Celsius because Celsius seems to have commingled the custody funds with, uh, with other funds. And there's, you know, a billion and a half hole or so in Celsius's balance sheet. Wow. So their terms were saying that the customer would have this custodial relationship if they use that earned product, but on the back end, because no, no. Oh wow. No, no. I don't. I don't think, I don't think that's, that's exactly right, Laura. I think they were quite explicit with the earned product that that it would, it would look a lot more like a loan. The, the the issue is with the custody product. That is where all the questions are coming up right now because. I think uh, recently came out in one of these articles uh, what was actually being said in the uh, bankruptcy court. And it was very clear that what 
with with the earned products, the products where you're generating a yield on it, you you you're sort of the, the term use wasn't exactly right, giving up legal rights to it, but you're giving up proprietary rights to it. You no longer own it. You've lent it to Celsius. Oh, oh, so those are the funds that are commingled. But I think all of them are commingled is the problem. So we have two two categories of funds. What, was it supposed to be that when you loaned it, that those would be marked as yours or that those would be pulled together and and then you kind of you know lose that claim of saying like, these are... Are definitely mine. We have these two different groups of uh, two different products. We have earn and custody. With earn by itself, pretty clear that it is a loan being made to Celsius. With the custody, it's the the terms and conditions are a little less clear, but it, it, there's a decent case that it's supposed to be remain customer property. I just need you to finish out that thought. When you do make a loan to Celsius, does that mean then that you that you lose that custody yes. relationship? Yes. Then, you, then you're just a creditor. You're taking counterparty risk on Celsius when that happens. When it's custody, you're not meant to take counterparty risk. The, the equivalent is if you went to a bank and you put a million dollars in a bank and then you put a million dollars into the bank's safety deposit box. Um, if the bank goes under, you are an unsecured creditor for the amount of the million dollars you deposited to an account, whereas you can claim back what's in the safety deposit box, i.e. the full million dollars, because that property was always yours. Oh, I see. Okay. The problem is that Celsius seems to have commingled the funds that were uh, deposited in the earn capacity with the funds that were deposited in the custody capacity. And (laughs) it's as if the stuff that's in the safety deposit box got mixed together with the regular bank deposits. Exactly. So essentially they, they weren't following what the terms of their agreements were. Is that right? I'm not sure that they were actually violating the terms of their agreements. They, I believe that Celsius did indicate that it was going that that it might that it was that funds might be commingled. I, the problem is, you know, commingling itself wouldn't be a, a, an issue if you don't have a shortfall of funds. It's when there isn't enough to pay everyone back. How, how do you allocate the losses? Do you allocate them on maybe a prorated basis among the custody and the earned customers? Or do you allocate them all to earn and say, look, the custody stuff we never actually touched? So what's your theory, both of you, about how they'll handle this? I, I, think, the, <laughs> I think the practical implication here, right, <clears throat> is if you look at these Celsius sort of assets and liabilities that they put up on their sort of um, Alex Shinsky's uh, Chapter 11 declaration, they've allocated $180 million in custody assets, $180 million in custody liabilities. So if it turns out and that's why they asked the judge this question. If it turns out that those custody assets liabilities are meant to be segregated, anyone who put their crypto, their money, whatever assets into custody will be very happy about it because you'll be able to get everything back. You'll get one for one. If it is not treated as a custody relationship and the guys who put assets into custody product turn out to be unsecured creditors, then they would share in the pool with all of the other general unsecured creditors. So that's how it would work practically. Yeah, it wasn't clear. It wasn't real clear to me from the Mashinsky Declaration how strong of a position Celsius was actually taking on on this issue. Certainly, the way the kind of very high level balance sheet breakdown that was presented in the declaration um, lines up with the way that Wasi lawyer, you know, characterizes it. But I'm not sure if that was like a, really a very deliberate thing or not. Um, the uh, Celsius Celsius's bankruptcy filing does not seem like 
it was, you know, put together super carefully. It was seemed like it was kind of a thing that Kirkland and Ellis had to do in a bit of a rush. And I, I'd be careful about reading too much into, you know, any particular words that get, they, that get used. Yeah, absolutely. One for later, but absolutely there's a clear difference between how the Celsius filing looks and what the Voyager filing looks. There's a really interesting divide by uh, kind of also bet- uh, under the surface between the um, custody and the urn customers. The custody customers are all domestic American accounts. So if you are open, if you were in the UK or Australia or Finland and you wanted to deal with Celsius, you were dealing with Celsius only as an earned customer. And I don't think that's something that's likely to shape the legal treatment, but it's a factor that's lurking in the background where, you know, maybe there's a temptation to treat domestic customers better. Um, I don't think that's going to play out, but that, that there's at least a possibility there. Well, I mean, it sounds like the custody customers already generally, based on the definition, come in with a stronger position, right? Absolutely. It's not that they necessarily win, but they have a, I think they have a decent argument. Whereas the earned customers, I don't see any way that they're going to end up being anything other than uh, just general unsecured creditors. And so how does this all apply to Voyager? Because we've only really been talking about it in relation to Celsius, but I imagine Voyager has a kind of similar situation. Yeah, um, I think that the with Voyager, I think it pro- it's going it's going to apply in a similar way. I mean, Voyager, all their crypto holdings were commingled. Voyager was less clear in its terms of use, though, than Celsius. So, if you were depositing funds with Voyager, they didn't have kind of two separate products. Instead, they the Voyager uses language that kind of indicates, well, it's your it's still your crypto, except the facts are that they get to use it pretty much like Celsius. And that's, that, that's the trickier situation. If you, instead of having, you know, having two clear categories, Voyagers sort of sitting in the middle, I suspect what the treatment in Voyager is going to be that it gets treated like, uh, as if it's um, property of Voyager. And that's the position that Voyager has been taking is that this is, this is the, this is their property, not customer property. But even if it ends up being treated as customer property, and this is a really key point, it's only customer property to the extent that Voyager has the assets. To the extent there's a shortfall, those customers are unsecured creditors for the shortfall. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and can we just discuss why it is that retail customers are lower uh, in the pecking order than institutional investors? They're not. I get, no, they're absolutely not. Um, it, it all, it all d- depends on the terms of the, the arrangement. And to the extent that anyone else lent unsecured to, if an institutional investor lent unsecured to, to, to Celsius or Voyager or 3AC for the matter, they'll be in exactly the same pool as the retail investors. If they had security, then they would have re- security or collateral, then they would have, they would have recourse to their security or collateral. So all, all unsecured creditors have the same priority. They all stand alike. So I, also, I don't think any of the, I don't think there is any secured. I'm not sure that there. Well, it's not clear that there is any secured credit. Voyager doesn't seem to indicate any secured credit. And Celsius, I think, when the, by the time they filed, they had paid down all the that they paid off all the DeFi the, the DeFi loans that may or may not actually be secured. Y- yes, um, the, they paid down all of their DeFi loans. 
prior to the filing because the DeFi loans were all over collateralized. So it made sense for them to have more assets in the company's balance sheet and, you know, not to have it. But your question about sort of insolvency priority, uh, unsecured creditors tend to be dead last. Like they, they are dead last. And the way you get priority over that is, well, there are preferential creditors created by statute. I'm not sure what it is in the US, but normally it's, you know, taxes, you know, taxes, owed, um, employees. You're forgetting the most important one. The, the, the you got to pay the grave diggers. It's the, the administrative cost of the bankruptcy. Of course, the cost of bankruptcy has come up first. Oh, yes. Kirkland and Alice get paid first. Um. <laughs> they already made three million. Oh, that's just scratching the surface. I mean, the the, the, co- the administrative costs of a bankruptcy can get it will it will be high. It will be absolutely incredible. Yeah, yeah. No, I high. mean, uh, like in the short amount of time that this has been going, they already made three million. <laughs> I saw an article like I would expect the total fees here for professionals to be over a hundred million. Laura, that's why um, I've I've been in I've I've been in the room with discussions like before people file for Chapter Eleven, and uh, normally at creditor side. And the debt is, to the extent it's possible for them, they would sometimes just threaten the chapter 11. Because once you threaten the chapter 11, all the creditors go, okay, shit, all right, fine, let's not do that, please. That's terrible. Because there's going to be so much value leakage to professional fees ahead of me, and I don't get to do anything for months. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I just like seeing that that bill that Kirkland and Ellis sent in for $3 million and then thinking about the various customers who, you know, they have like a hundred thousand in there or 70,000 or whatever. And I was just like, oh, this is obviously not good for them. But anyway, I did also, when I tweeted about questions people had for you, someone who was a Celsius customer asked, how does it work if your Bitcoin loan was liquidated while the company was frozen and it was not possible to send in funds to protect it or close it off? Can that be reversed and funds retrieved during the bankruptcy process? Let's see if I have the scenario right in my head here. So prior to bankruptcy, someone had borrowed money from Celsius, right? No, it sounds like they were lending. And they, they wanted to. They wanted to pay. They wanted to pay it off. So it sounds like this is a, a borrower from Celsius. Has a third group of folks who borrowed money from Celsius and posted collateral for their loans <clears throat> and that crypto and the collateral they posted, I think may have also been commingled with all the other crypto holdings. So it sounds like they couldn't pay it off. Some this is someone who wanted to make a payment and Celsius wouldn't accept the payment. Yeah. Cause it was frozen. Yeah. I think that they probably just have a, uh, an unsecured claim against Celsius for breach of contract. Agreed. And so then they, I don't think they get their crypto back. I think that they, they have a, a dollar claim and how much that will get paid is anyone's guess. So think of if you're claim, if you have a claim and it's allowed, that's like having an entry ticket. It doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily see any value. It just makes you eligible for a distribution in the bankruptcy. Laura, maybe it would help if we just did like a minute on kind of an overview of, of chapter 11 of the process. Would that be? So I'm going to try and do this in like one minute and not talk too long. Here's kind of the, 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 very, the very nutshell overview of the U.S. bankruptcy process. When a debtor files for bankruptcy, first thing that happens is something called the automatic stay. This is an injun- basically like an injunction against any attempt to collect from the debtor outside of the bankruptcy process. 
At the same time, there is a new legal entity that's created. It's called the bankruptcy estate. And the bankruptcy estate has title to all of the debtor's assets, no matter where they're located. So what we're doing is we're bringing all the assets and all the claims against those assets together into a single forum and hopefully having a more orderly process. The bankruptcy estate in Chapter 11 is managed by an entity called the debtor in possession or DIP. It's not a pejorative. And that just means it's the pre-bankruptcy management running the show, but they're wearing a different hat. The hat that they're wearing now makes them fiduciaries for creditors and shareholders. So creditors will file claims with a claims agent for the court. Stretto is the claims agent for Voyager and Celsius. And if you don't file a claim, uh, Celsius or Voyager are probably going to just schedule it according to their books and records. And claims are deemed approved unless someone objects, but Celsius and Voyager very well may object to certain claims. So they're going to spend some time looking at all the claims. And if Celsius or Voyager want to do anything outside of the ordinary course of business, they need court approval. So they, if they don't normally uh, you know, scratch, the, scratch their head, they need to go to the court and make a motion for permission to scratch their head. For the 100, first 120 days, the debtor has the exclusive right to propose a plan of reorganization or liquidation. That 120-day period, though, can be extended to 18 months. So, and it often is. So there's going to be a window where only the debtor has the choice of kind of how to move going forward. But there's going to be a very important kind of counterweight to the debtor. There's going to be um, set up in the next couple of weeks a thing called the Official Committee, Official Creditors Committee. That's a body of a representative body of creditors that's selected by a Department of Justice official called the United States Trustee. And the uh, members of the Official Creditors Committee are fiduciaries for the creditors they represent. They will hire their own attorneys and uh, financial advisors. And if you kind of think of how the courtroom is going to be set up, instead of being one table for the prosecutors and one for the defendants, you'll have one table where there's going to be the debtor's counsel and typically one table where the committee counsel, uh, the official committee's counsel will sit. That kind of gives you a sense of the, the relative weight of the parties. Now, here's the thing that's often not understood well about bankruptcy. It's the role of the judge, because there's a bankruptcy judge. And the bankruptcy judge is like a referee, not a quarterback. The judge decides on matters put before him. And that means you need to make a motion for the judge to do something. You're asking the judge to approve or disapprove of something. The judge is not making the plan. The judge is not deciding generally, oh, this is what's fair and what's not. It's that there are very specific issues put before the judge and if there isn't a motion before the judge, the judge isn't going to act on anything. The judge has hundreds of other cases going on, other big, other large business bankruptcies, lots of consumer bankruptcies. So this is kind of a, a situation where it's, hey, tell me what I need to decide right now and I'll figure it out. And if it's not an issue that's immediately before me, well, <laughs> I'm dealing with other problems. And this is a process that's going to be slow. It's going to be expensive because the debtors, attorneys, and financial advisors, their fees come out of the top. The official committee's attorneys and, and financial advisors, all of their fees come out, off the top. And these administrative expenses, you know, so paying the grave digger, that's going to probably, in a case like this, easily turn into $100 million, maybe two would be my guess in that range. And that's money that's not available for customers. Uh, and that's just kind of the cost of the process. Wow. 
Yeah. I. And how long do you expect both the Celsius and Voyager bankruptcies to take? So it's important to note that Celsius has not filed a plan of reorganization yet, but Voyager has. So Voyager has provided a lot more sort of details around what they intend to do. Maybe I can let Adam talk about how these plans work <laughs> since he's done such a great job. Voyager didn't <laughs> Voyager didn't exactly file a plan of reorganization. Now, so they, they did they did kind of a uh, a funny move. Yeah, they they when they filed, they they included as a filing with the court this half-baked plan, except the actual way the chapter 11 process works is you can't you have to, what you're going to have to do is ultimately solicit creditors' votes on a plan. Yes. The creditors are going to have a vote. You cannot solicit their votes until the court has approved a disclosure statement about the plan. And a disclosure statement is going to probably, in a case like this, be a 100, 150 page document that's going to do everything from laying out the history of how the debtor got here to summarizing what the plan does, how it treats every kind of claim what the debtor's business model is going forward. And it's supposed to be give creditors adequate information to be able to vote on, on a plan. Do they like it or not? Just filing a plan doesn't let you do anything. You need to get a disclosure statement approved. Otherwise, the plan is just a piece of paper that sits out there. So I think what Kirkland and Ellis did, and this is something K&E does quite frequently, they'll file kind of just a, a placeholder plan to give an indication of where they're thinking of going, and to try and frame the conversation. It in no way binds Celsius to that being its ultimate plan. Celsius could change direction on a, on, on a dime, and it doesn't bind anyone else. It's just a conversation starter. Okay. So when do you think we might get the formal plan? I think that's going to be sometime, especially for Celsius. Um, Voyager is simpler. Voyager just has a, you know, Voyager's got the problem of figuring out the status of the customer funds. Once it does that, I think, you know, the Voyager's big issue is that, you know, it was making, its loan book was ridiculously concentrated. Like 58% of its loan book was three arrows capital, which is just like, the insanity of that is beyond description. So if you were a bank in the United States, you are limited to lending, if it's fully collateralized, 25% of your capital and surplus to a single borrower. If you figure a bank's capital is 8%, we're talking therefore about no more than 2% of your assets to any one loan. And like people go to jail when banks mess that up. Like That's why Paul Manafort is in jail because he he was uh, defrauding a bank to get to go beyond the loan limit, and here we got fifty eight percent of their loan book, which is pretty much all their assets, going to to one borrower, and ninety nine percent are you know over six counterparties. Like you know, oh, it's just nuts. So if they you know, there's going to be a big question: Can they? Is there any model which they can reorganize on? And I'm rather skeptical because like, this is a business that's built on customer trust and who on earth would trust a, com- a company that did such a bad job with risk management to ever do and to ever get this right in the future? You know, maybe their tech stack was decent. I don't really know. But if it was decent, that's something that someone else can buy and uh, pair it up with better risk management. 
So the bottom line, how long is this going to take with any of them? It's a huge guess. I think we're looking at, uh, for the, these kinds of cases, we're probably looking at something in the, in the, that's approaching two years and how long it actually takes for final distributions could go on longer. And when you said that Voyager had a simpler case than Celsius, is it because the fact that it wasn't the commingling and it really was just the fact that, you know, they had this one huge loan that defaulted? I think so. Celsius, Celsius has, um, there are suggestions that there may have been more funny business going on with Celsius. Voyager just seems to have been incompetent on risk management. Celsius seems to have also had that problem. But if you look at the, the, the Kefi lawsuit and the, some of the letters that are being submitted in the docket, there, there seems to be a sense of some people that Mashinsky was doing something beyond just being, being a bad risk manager. Yeah, I, I completely agree there. I think it looks like why Voyager had gone over is exactly as Adam has said. It's just extended this massive, massive loan to Trieros Capital. And otherwise, everything was sort of ticking along, apart from their exceedingly crap risk management. And based on sort of the indicative sort of plan, it looks like they just, yeah, their, their plan is, look, we're just going to move the default risk from on AC, or at least, you know, we'll move all of that onto the, onto the uh, account holders instead. So the draft plan basically says, look, you're an account holder and we owe you money. We're going to give you a bit of cash, a little bit of crypto that we have left. We're going to give you some Voyager tokens and we're going to give you whatever we manage, your share of whatever we managed to recover from Triaros Capital. So when we recover anything from Triaros Capital, it doesn't come into bankruptcy. It doesn't come into this sort of reorganized company. It goes to a third party and it distributes it to, it, it, it gets distributed to you. Obviously, that's being incredibly optimistic about what you can actually recover from Trieros Capital. The Chapter 11 plan for, for Voyager is going to be very closely linked to how the Trieros liquidation plays out. To add to what Adam has said on Celsius, exactly it. There's a lot more sort of funny business going on. When I read the filing, they kind of went, oh, we only lost about $15 million on Luna. We didn't, we didn't get destroyed that badly. We, we lost, they lost only about $40 million on, 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 on the TriAC loan, which is you know, a, a large amount, but small compared to what Voyager has done. But then you start looking at all the strange things that they've been doing. They lost 35k ETH, just lost it because someone they gave it to misplaced the keys. You've got a private lending platform, unnamed, we don't know who this is, that defaulted and there is now a loss of like something about over 400 million, which they are slowly trying to get recoveries on. And one of my favorite quotes in the whole thing is, there were certain asset managed asset deployment decisions that were made that in hindsight proved problematic. <laughs> so very vague <laughs> about that. And um, yeah, we, we don't really know what, what tipped them over. It just looks like a series of incredibly bad decisions. Yeah, yeah, definitely with the Celsius one, uh, even when I was just writing questions for the show, I had so many more questions because there were like so many more kind of red flags or question marks there. But with the Voyager, it seemed a little bit more straightforward, which is, you know, not to say that they didn't mess up hugely. But I actually will, I want to circle back to that question of how much people will be able to get, or rather Voyager will be able to get from 3AC. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Is your Web3 experience hindered by inadequate crypto wallets and browser extensions? Ava Labs has created Core, a free non-custodial browser extension engineered for Avalanche users 
to have a more seamless and secure Web3 experience. The best-in-class Avalanche Bridge now offers native support for the Bitcoin network. Put your Bitcoin to work in the robust DeFi ecosystem by bridging BTC to Avalanche today. With Core, you can also easily swap assets, display your NFTs in style, store your assets in a Ledger-enabled wallet, and put real dollars into your crypto wallet in just a few clicks. Core is everything you need for a simple, secure, and convenient Web3 experience. Download the free Core browser extension from Google Chrome's App Store today. Oasis aims to offer improved privacy and scalability compared to other existing blockchains. They feature 99% lower gas fees versus Ethereum, high throughput, instant finality, and defense against MEV, making it ideal for decentralized applications. Oasis invites prominent Web3 developers to apply for its grants program and receive full ecosystem support, along with up to $50,000 in grant funding to create dApps in DeFi, GameFi, or NFTs. Join the community of innovative developers today and build the future of Web3 with Oasis Network. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Back to my conversation with Wasi Lawyer and Adam. So Wasi Lawyer, earlier when you were saying that a big part of what's going to determine how much Voyager customers get is, you know, what they can claw back from 3AC. What is your sense there of how that's looking for people? Because we got a little bit of a taste, you know, a week ago on, it'll be a week by the time this comes out on kind of what assets 3AC has. It's going to be quite difficult to answer the question um, exactly. What we do know is that from the documents that sort of come out, that there is at least $2.8 billion of claims against Three Arrows Capital right now. We do know that apparently some, it came out of some of the sources that the liquidators have secured $40 million of funds. $40 million and $2.8 billion, pretty massive gap. On top of that, it, it does look like Three Arrows Capital doesn't really have it, it, it may be the case that they don't have that many liquid assets. So I think we covered this briefly in the, the last show, Laura. What sort of assets would they have? They would have equity warrants, token warrants, tokens, tokens that are going to be vested. I mean, they probably hold a crap ton of Luna too. The yacht. Don't forget the yacht. <laughs> $50 million yacht, but I don't think it's been delivered yet. So <laughs> a, ha- a, ha- a half-built yacht. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got a ton of NFTs. They've got, and one thing that's going to be quite interesting is how uh, these, so when I read the recognition filing in Singapore, maybe this is for the three arrows bit uh, later on or separately, there's the question of what happens to the Defiance funds and what happens to the Starry Nights funds and what happens to this fund called Wobbler. So what happens is, is essentially it looks like 3AC have co-mingled all of their funds into under one single entity and it looks like Defiant and Starry Night and Wobbler were actually managed by persons other than 3AC. So it'd be interesting to see if the liquidators, how the liquidators rock up to these guys and say, hand over everything. Your funds have been liquidated because you're part of a structure that has been so horribly mismanaged. I feel quite bad for those guys, actually. <laughs> 
Wasi Lawyer, you've been following 3AC more closely than I have. When the liquidators say they've recovered $40 million, does that mean that means that they have the, you know, it's either cash that they have control of or they have the private keys for what are, for the digital assets? Not 100% sure on that one, but that's what this, so that's what's come on to report. So they've recovered, quote unquote, 40 million of assets. So I, I take it then that it, for all the other assets, it, no one, no one knows at this point, or at least the liquidators don't know who has the private keys. I think it sounds like, and, and we have to read between the lines here, right? Because this is all from the, for what the liquidators have told the courts of, you know, the US and Singapore where they're applying for recognition. So what we do know is that it seems that Sue and Kao have not been very cooperative. And presumably, these are the guys that are holding a shit ton of those keys. Now, at some point, you expect them to play ball. But it does look like, you know, as of the date when the liquidators applied to the Singapore court, um, they weren't very cooperative. And no one knows exactly where they are. Well, apparently, they're going to Dubai. <laughs> this is like, yeah, we're all the people who are fleeing something in crypto. End maybe, up. <laughs> maybe they just paid off. Maybe they just paid off the yacht, and they're just sailing the seven seas now. <laughs> yeah, I think the the yacht is still yet to be delivered, and in Europe. Maybe that's exactly where they're going. Because if you read the filings, they they squirreled thirty million dollars away to. Uh, Taiping Shan entity they're related to, $10 million to an unrecovered wallet, and the cost of the yard is $50 million. Maybe the down payment is 20%. <laughs> Hopefully at some point we will find out more on their whereabouts, or if they end up in Dubai, we'll, we'll just hear about it. So I did also want to then circle back to this other question related to the one that the customer with the Bitcoin loan at Celsius had. So as you guys mentioned, in that case, likely that customer will get dollars back. And what's your sense of, you know, how likely it is that a lot of the crypto assets in any of these firms will be turned into dollars? And what's your sense of whether or not the customers would prefer to have crypto assets versus dollars? Okay, I think just to jump in here first, I think there's a different process. This is a question that's very relevant to both, you know, to all three of Celsius, Voyager, 3AC. But again, to draw a distinction, 3AC is in liquidation. So it's going to be liquidated. It's not going to exist as a company after the process is done. Whereas Celsius and Voyager file for Chapter 11. And what they want to do ideally is to continue as a business afterwards. So it may be the case that in the plan of reorganization, eventually goes through that you get a mixture of crypto, you get you get distributions in kind, which means in crypto, or you get it in cash, whatever the, the, the plan turns out to be. This becomes a much bigger question for 3 Arrows Capital because if I've lent Bitcoin into Three Arrows Capital, maybe I want Bitcoin back. Maybe I don't want a US dollar amount. And there's a question of when I convert the Bitcoin to US dollars if the liquidators do choose to do so. So I've looked into this a fair bit, but I know Adam has a bit to say about it. So I'm just going to throw the mic over to him and opine on how this works, at least in the US. Okay. So in the US, there are kind of two pieces we have to look at. First is what is your claim? And then second, how can that claim get paid? Regarding what your claim is, it doesn't matter what form you you extended value to the debtor. It gets dollarized as of the date of the bankruptcy filing. So for Celsius, you're looking at you know the value of the uh, the crypto that you were owed on July 13th, and presumably you know we can get it down to the minute of the bankruptcy petition. But it, you know if it's Bitcoin, it's around in the twenty thousand range. Voyager on July 5th actually turns out to be right around in the same range. So 
if you had you know one Bitcoin parked with with Celsius, you have a claim for tw- roughly twenty thousand dollars, and it doesn't matter that Bitcoin today might be at twenty three thousand. Your claim is for twenty thousand, so you don't get any of the market rise. On the other hand, the market falls, your claim is still locked in at twenty. The problem is if the market falls, they just don't have the assets to pay you that twenty. So this is this either way you get kind of rope it out here. Either way, it works badly for you. Now that's the bad news on the what is your claim side. The better news for you is on how your claim can be treated. A Chapter 11 plan can be a plan of reorganization or a plan of liquidation. You know, usually, Chapter 11 is thought of as being reorganization, but businesses of any size that want to liquidate will use Chapter 11 because it's more flexible than Chapter 7. Management stays in place in Chapter 11, and Chapter 7 it gets moved out. A Chapter 11 plan can pay you in any form it wants. It's just as law, it has to give you value that is at least as much as you would get in a Hypothetical Chapter Seven liquidation, but if the mar- that uh, you know you did, that value is as of the effective date of the plan, so you just have to see what the market value is. They could pay you in Bitcoin, they could pay you in shitcoin. The only question is, you know, do they have the votes for confirming the plan? If you vote again, and this is a majoritarian rule exercise, so it doesn't matter if you vote against a plan. If they get the requisite votes and a plan is approved, it binds all creditors regardless of what they want. And to the extent you're not paid under a plan, you cannot, there's no one you can try and collect from afterwards. Your The debt gets discharged unless there's like a third party that you say is liable as a guarantor and hasn't gotten a release. Curiously, there are some interesting releases in the Voyager plan. Uh, Alameda um, gets a, is uh, at least proposed to get a release. So if there was some kind of a litigation claim against Alameda, that would be gone and creditors wouldn't be able to try and uh, collect from SBF. Oh, wow. I guess that's um, maybe because I think they were an investor in Voyager. So is that just something they negotiated from? I assume that this was kind of, uh, I mean, they, they have, they're kind of ever wearing all the hats. They have, uh, like, they're the single largest equity investor with, but it's like a nine and a half percent position. They are the second largest loan counterparty. And then they also extended credit back the other way with 75 million, which under the, the Voyager plan seems to be classified separately and you know, basically just canceled out. Okay. And yeah, because I thought there was something about the way that it was structured where it was meant to prioritize the customers, but then it, it like didn't, they didn't implement it or something like that. I, you know, I, I don't know if the loan agreement looks like that. That's certainly consistent with how they, the, uh, the Voyager placeholder plan treats it, that, it, that it, putting in a separate class than, uh, than customers and then saying that it gets no, it, it gets paid nothing in the, uh, would be consistent with that kind of treatment, but I don't know if there was if there was some contractual agreement before the bankruptcy about that. So I believe there are customers writing in uh, saying that they would prefer that their crypto assets not be dollarized. Do you think that any of the bankruptcy judges or or any of anyone really that involved in the bankruptcies will have a sympathetic ear to that, or do you feel that they'll just follow the you know what what the law says 
It's not the judge's call on this. The judge doesn't decide what, what the contents of the plan are. The judge just says yay or nay about whether the plan is confirmable. So the, ultimately, there's going to have to be a plan confirmation hearing. It's like a little mini trial. And the judge is going to have to decide whether the plan meets a whole list of criteria. And if it does, then the judge doesn't have any discretion about confirming the plan. Even if the judge thinks the plan is a bad idea, if it's... Like, do you feel that they'll be sympathetic? No, the the, the decision is made by, you know, just simply voting against the plan. The, 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 The account holders, the unsecured creditors can simply say this plan doesn't work. We want a different plan. But as long as there's plan exclusive, the plan, as long as the debtor has plan exclusivity, it's the debtor's call what's in the plan. So the debtor right now is determining what's on the menu. Correct. And you can decide whether uh, you can decide whether you want to order or not what's on the menu, but it's a collective decision. You're bound by the collective. Once plan exclusivity lapses, then you know any creditor that wants can come in and propose a plan. And how long is that period? Up to eighteen months. Hundred eighty. It's, uh, it's extendable up to eighteen months, though. Yeah. So, how likely is it that you think Celsius or Voyager will be sympathetic to? that desire and make that part of their plan. So Laura, I think it's incredibly, incredibly difficult for anyone administrating a bankrupt estate to start dealing in all these different currencies. So I think it'll be quite difficult for them to figure out, you know, this whole returning Bitcoin, returning ETH, returning all of these various coins along with US dollars. So it'll be difficult. Uh, I'm not sure how... I'm, I'm sure it'd be quite different because in the Three Arrows case, it has to be dollarized at some point. With the Chapter 11s, I think it would just be administratively difficult to deal with so many different crypto assets. I think it goes, that's a really important point, the administrative difficulties. But also, if you're holding all these crypto assets, you're holding assets that are quite volatile. And yes, they might go back to the moon or they might they might fall and... If you think if you think that you're sort of if you're putting your hat on as a fiduciary for creditors and shareholders, that probably pushes for dollarizing and just making you know selling off all the crypto, do a slow sell off so you don't crash the market and, and push down your own prices, but do a slow sell off, turn it all into dollars and pay out the dollars, and, and uh, that's certainly the easiest way to do it. You can imagine there will be some unhappy customers with it. But once, if you've dollarized it before you propose a plan, then there's really, there's not much the customers can do to complain, right? There are, there is no crypto left. Right. I mean, I just think what you said about being a fiduciary, that's like seeing it from a non-crypto person's perspective, because the reason that these people want to keep the crypto assets is because they don't care about the dollar value. They care about the crypto. So it's like one ETH is one ETH and that's more valuable than any amount of dollars. So for them, it would be like, well, I don't care what the dollar value is because, you know, I, I just want the ETH. Um, but anyway, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I, I, just I saying. would say that I would, for, for a typical uh, for a typical kind of uh, hold on for dear life person, I think that's true, except these, I, that's not the, if you're putting your money in Celsius or Voyager, it's because you're looking to get a dollar return. Right. Maybe you take it. Maybe you're willing to take the payment in kind in, in you know, their, their Celsius um, a token. But ultimately, you're looking to get a dollar return. So this is a this is a different kind of investor than someone who is just 
buying Bitcoin and hoping that the market's going to go up. This is actually the type of investor that's a little more risk averse because they want the fixed dollar return rather than just playing and watching the commodity price go up and down. This is a much bigger issue with Trieros Capital, actually, because of the investor profile there and how this thing is going to play out. And um, so I've thought about this a fair bit and sort of shout out to Gone Be Good because it's been discussing this with me and it's come up with some pretty amazing ideas and thoughts about how this would play out. Because what you have is now you've got investors that a lot of them, I mean, from all of these sources, you sh- it shows them extending BTC denominated loans. And these are large, large amounts of Bitcoin. And when Three Arrows went into liquidation, Bitcoin was trading at what, between the 18 to 20K range, closer to 18 probably. And since then, Bitcoin has rebounded a bit. And over the next two years, plus, plus, whatever, however long this liquidation takes, Bitcoin price could very well recover. So according to, and this is based on a very brief read, I am not a BVI lawyer, but based on a very brief read of how BVI insolvency works, if you've got loans in other currencies, you have to change it to US dollars when you file a proof of claim. So you have to dollarize it. And this is something that people will sort of be thinking about going, I don't really want to have my Bitcoin denominated loans you know, essentially liquidated at 80K. And then two years later, Bitcoin's like 100K. Maybe Sue is right and the super cycle is a real thing. So so, so that that's an issue. And, and sort of shout out again to Gone Be Good here. He sort, of, he sort of went, well, but if you looked at Bitcoin or its crypto assets as a commodity, then what you're, what, you're, what you're suing for, you could be suing for non-delivery of the commodity. And that is a contractual claim. It's not a liquidated claim. So there isn't a number to it at the moment. But then this still opens, so, so this opens the door possibly to you getting maybe possibly bits of the upside um, if Bitcoin recovers. But at some point, this unliquidated claim still has to be dollarized. There needs to be a number ascribed to it. And it's a question mark as to when that point of time is, if you ask me. Probably requires a lot more thinking around contract law and uh, individual circumstances, etc. Now, listeners might be wondering why, if if this is the British Virgin Islands, you would dollarize to U.S. dollars. And it's because the British Virgin Islands have used the U.S. dollar as their official currency since the 1950s. Um, it's a weird, weird situation, but I think it's just about geographic proximity. But based on my reading, it doesn't look like Bitcoin is defined as a currency or as money under the BGI legislation. So the sort of commodities-based interpretation could be, could hold some weight here. Oh, interesting. Well, so we'll have to see how that plays out. One other topic that I wanted to be sure that we talk about is there might also be a possibility of clawbacks of pre-bankruptcy transfers. Oh, yes. (laughs) So yeah, what kinds of transfers would be classified that way? And then how would we determine whether any of those should be clawed back? There, there are two categories that, well, actually three categories that, that are worth talking about. Probably the most important from a customer perspective are what are called voidable preferences. And the, the idea is that certain transfers made to creditors in the, um, the 90 days before bankruptcy can be unwound. And if you're an unsecured creditor, the transfer is unwindable. There are some defenses. Um, and the most the most important ones are there's a de minimis amount that you know, it's just not worth litigating over, and then there is an ordinary course of business defense. So if the transfer was in the ordinary course of business of both 
the debtor. So, you know, if you took money, if you withdrew money from Celsius, let's say, that's a that's a payment to a creditor because you you Celsius owed you money. You withdrew you withdrew your funds in the 90 days before bankruptcy. You have that might be in the ordinary course of Celsius's business to pay withdrawals, right? That, that happens all the time with uh, presumably with Celsius. But it also has to be in the ordinary course of the customer's business. And that's where I think there's an interesting question. It's not weird to think that a customer might withdraw funds at some point. But if the customer had been holding funds, holding funds, holding funds, and never withdrew until this one moment, I think it's kind of hard to say that withdrawing funds is, is actually in the ordinary course of the customer's business. So I think that's an issue the court will have to that court the court will have to figure out if uh, Celsius or Voyager pursue these prefer- avoidable preference actions, and I think they're likely to do so because there's a substantial pool of money that could be clawed back that way. Once that money is clawed back, if it is, then the folks whose money got clawed back they have unsecured claims in the bankruptcy. So you thought you got out before the bankruptcy, and if you didn't get out before in the uh, 91 days before the bankruptcy or more, you might get dragged back into the bankruptcy. That's the most important group. There are two other things that can be clawed back. Another thing are uh, what are called fraudulent transfers. Not It doesn't have to be actual fraud. This is just you know transfers made to hinder, delay, or defraud creditors. I don't think that really exists with Voyager, but maybe with um, Celsius, especially with trans- transactions with insiders, maybe there's something there. And then um, the other really, really interesting thing in the background with uh, for Celsius is going to be the treatment of the, D- of the redemptions of the DeFi loan collateral. So DeFi loans are characterized as being collateralized. And we think collateral, oh, it's a secured loan. Well, it's certainly functionally secured, but bankruptcy law doesn't care about functional security. It cares about whether a loan, whether if there is something like a security interest, has it been perfected? And that's a term of art, meaning that you've taken certain legal steps that lock in your, the priority of a security interest. If a security interest has not been perfected, it can be avoided. It's gone. It just becomes unsecured. These DeFi loans seem to have been secured through just basically a smart contract protocol, that's not going to cut it with bankruptcy. That means that they can be treated as unsecured loans, and therefore, because they were unsecured loans, you can treat the redemptions as preferences, and you can claw back the the redemption payment. The problem is these DeFi protocols, who are you clawing it back from, right? It's, it's going to be a freaking mess. Yeah, you try like you try. Uh, there's going to be a huge mess figuring out how, if at all, it's possible to claw claw funds back from a DeFi protocol. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but there there is potentially a lot of money at stake. And that you know, if this were ten million dollars, it might be this isn't worth figuring out. But when you're talking about hundreds of millions, then there's a lot of pressure to figure out a way to to claw back money from 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 um, everyone who uses a DeFi protocol. I mean, like just from the perspective of the smart contract itself, my answer is like, that's not possible. Do you know what I'm saying? Funds can be, well, especially with Ether, um, it's quite easy to track balances. 
right? You see where money there. You see where money. You know, everyone who put money into a pool, you see who they they get the money out of the pool. I think you can trace that. Now, can you actually figure out who the who own those wallets, right? That's that's another mess. Yeah, but, Adam, that's incredibly illuminating. To be honest, I've never really thought about the DeFi loans in that way. It kind of went, oh well, I guess you, I guess you, I guess, well, good for them. They overcollateralized, they managed to get out. But the way you sort of framed it, I, I think you, 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 you're absolutely right that there would be subject to some sort of clawback claim there, and how you do a clawback against DeFi protocols and DAOs, um, Laura. I think we're going to need about three hours. I'm going to do about three hours and a couple of days of research, and then I'll let you know what could work. <laughs> the unincorporated DAOs might be treated as general partnerships where everyone involved is jointly and severally liable, or maybe they're not. I mean, it's... Yeah, Adam, you need to be careful saying that about um, everyone in the DAO being you know, jointly and severally liable, because maybe you're giving the U.S. tariff holders an idea about suing every single Luna holder in the world. <laughs> <laughs> It may not make sense to sue everyone, right? You only sue the deep pockets, but it's also going to depend on how a DAO is set up. If a, if, if a DAO is, um, you know, some DAOs actually have incorporated entities and some don't. And the general partner argument is only for the ones that where there's nothing incorporated. I have to say, even for the beginning part of your clawback description, it sounds like that would just require human individuals, you know, to send back these crypto assets, which... Like you can't for, you know, you know, like the, the famous instances of like people being arrested and then they won't reveal the private key. Like, I mean, I mean, that even just sounds super messy. Well, if you, yeah, it, it's messy, but the you know, courts do have the power to hold people who do not comply with court orders in contempt. And that means among other things, you can, you can, you can put them in jail. Right. I'm just saying that like plenty of police have arrested people who still refuse to give up their private keys. So, yeah, yeah, I think practically it'll be very, very difficult. But theoretically, you could get a court order saying pay this amount back. And, you know, if you don't, you're in contempt of court. Potentially you could go to jail for it until you review your private keys, pay out monies. Potentially. Yeah, I'm just saying like. You know, it, it doesn't sound easy to do. The smart contract to me sounds like nearly impossible, but people are are difficult in their own way, uh, different from smart contracts. But you know, like even a two year old can can be really <laughs> difficult to manage. But anyway, one other thing that I was so curious about with Celsius was, as everybody has noted on its balance sheet, they said they valued their CEL tokens or sell tokens <laughs> at. Six hundred million dollars. Yeah, that that and- was insane. Yeah, that was insane. Absolutely insane. I will, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I've tweeted about this. I think the whole is actually one point eight billion. It's not one point two billion. How can you just create your own coin and ascribe it six hundred million when the market cap is nowhere near that? Yeah, the market cap is about two hundred fifteen million. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, or at least when I wrote this script, two hundred fifteen. So I was just wondering, like, first of all, would uh, the bankruptcy kind of judge or whoever's kind of looking at this, would they just consider that like blatantly lying or is there some way to explain how this number could be justified or like what, what's your take on what they did there? Where it stands right now, it doesn't really matter what they, with, you know, what the, those, num- those numbers in the Mashinsky declaration, when they, uh, if and when Celsius ever proposes a, um, a, plan, uh, a plan, it's going to need a disclosure statement. And it's going to need to have some discussion about what its assets are, and it's going to have to explain itself if it's putting any value on the Celsius tokens. 
Okay. So at the moment, this is why it sort of seems pulled out of thin air and not even related to the market cap at all. Yeah. I mean, as Mashinsky said, you know, he puts in a little uh, graphic in the declaration of unaudited um, high level financials. Okay. Yeah. So then the other thing I wanted to ask about this plan was Celsius's intention to basically save itself by mining a lot of Bitcoin, but they need the court to approve them finishing building out the mining center. First of all, what's your sense of how likely it is that that will be approved? How feasible do you think this plan is at helping Celsius recoup its costs? And yeah, just like, I don't know, a part of me when I was reading all this, I was a little bit like, I feel like a lot of this is so similar to how they ran their business. You know what I'm saying in terms of like the pie in the sky? Yeah. But I was curious to hear your thoughts. Laura, sort of reading the whole thing, it it does look like what Celsius has done is they just want to build a mining business and have taken a ton of funds from depositors and basically just channeled all of it into the mining business. And they're hoping that this this mining business is going to take off. I think they were considering an IPO. And then that would all magically pay out and they'll be able to pay back all the depositors loans. I think they think that this is how they'll rec- recoup their losses. But anyway, yes. or, or at least that's what they're claiming. Yeah, on an initial reading, it almost seems like if you're a depositor to Celsius, you were investing in their mining business, to be honest, just on initial reading. Oh, I, I, I think more than that. I mean, so usually you look at you look at the financials of mine of mining companies, and usually they have a good deal of debt that is just uh, to fund the acquisition of their mining rigs. Celsius doesn't have that debt. And uh, at least that's, you know, usually it's uh, done as a basically a lease of the rigs is the way it's structured. The reason they don't have that debt is because they finance the rigs with customer funds. Um, so the good, in some ways, that's the good news for Celsius as a mining business. It, the rigs don't seem to be collateral for anyone. The, what's not clear to me is how high Bitcoin prices have to be before their mining, for their mining business to be profitable. If Bitcoin is at 20,000, the cost of production might exceed the value of any Bitcoins they can get. And so profitability of the mining business is you know, hugely dependent on the price of Bitcoin. And then this is a pro- the problem that all miners have is that it's an arms race. So, um, there was just an announcement this week that one of the, one of the rig manufacturers had been able to come up with a next generation, even more energy efficient, um, processor. And, you know, what, I don't know how big the, 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 the savings are, the energy savings are there, but one possible implication is everyone who's just invested hundreds of millions in mining rigs bought outdated technology that won't be able to compete. And they're going to have to put in more money to buy the next generation of rigs. It's an iffy business. And one of the challenges any crypto company is going to have in a bankruptcy is that a bankruptcy plan cannot be confirmed by a court unless the court finds that the plan is feasible. This doesn't mean that the plan is a surefire thing. It's, it's going to necessarily work, but it basically has to be that it's more likely than not that the, that the plan is going to work and that the company isn't going to need to be back in bankruptcy needing further financial restructuring. And if you have an industry where the viability of a business is so heavily dependent on swings in asset prices, that gets trickier. It's not unprecedented. We have that with like oil and gas, for example. But here, the mining, it's, you know, it presents it presents a real challenge given that uh, 
uh, oil and gas, it's not unrealistic to, you know, the, the volatility of oil and gas prices is small compared with Bitcoin, let's say. Another thing I wanted to ask about was this KeyFi lawsuit. We briefly mentioned it earlier. For listeners who don't know, it was filed by Jason Stone, who's a former money manager for Celsius. They did not have a formal contract between them, but he was handling lots of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. Don't, don't you find that funny itself, right? The, the, you know, here's the, the money the money manager who's going to manage you know enormous sums and yet can't be bothered to have a formal contract. I was I was having crypto capital deja vu. <laughs> do, do you know what I'm talking about with the tether case? Like tether w- ended up having to loan hundreds of millions of dollars to the parent company because they had entered into some business agreement with crypto capital, which was like a sort of shady business in Europe. And crypto capital had hundreds of millions of dollars of theirs, and for whatever reason, got tied up in some kind of I forget regulatory, governmental, something or other. And so Tether ended up giving this massive loan to to uh, Ifinex as the name of the company. And the New York AG called them out being like, you're saying that you're fully backed, but you just lent all this money out, da, 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 da. And so in the end, they just, I think, had agreed to like give transparency reports after that. But I think they might have had a small fine. But anyway, point is, there was no contract between Ifinex and Crypto Capital. So it, it just uh, reminded me so much of this. But essentially, Jason Stone, who also, by the way, was like a, a non, it was what what was this? It was like 0x1BT or something. He was like a popular Twitter account. But he alleged that Celsius manipulated markets and didn't institute basic accounting controls. He also accused the lender of being a Ponzi scheme. He cited certain instances where, for instance, you know, he knew that they had taken a loan from Tether paying like X amount in interest, but then were promising uh, customers that they could earn even more in interest, which like literally makes zero business sense. But anyway, um, so he is now suing suing for damages for an amount to be determined at trial. And I was just wondering, how likely is it, do you think, that Stone sees any money and how would his claims be prioritized against that of customers? So this is, first of all, just to, just to point out, this is probably one of those asset deployment decisions, which in hindsight proved problematic. (laughs) 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 Obviously, absolutely ridiculous that they are managing this ludicrously large amount of money without a formal contract. So that bit of it is probably true because if it weren't, um, Celsius would have caught it all in the garbage. The rest of it, I'm happy for Adam to sort of expand on it, but if what is being alleged is true, it's obviously things of terrible, terrible mismanagement. But then again, this is, this, this is a one-sided statement at this point. So we have to see how this one plays out. Yeah. Stone, um, unfortunately for Stone, he, even if everything he says is true, all he is is a general unsecured creditor. And he stands at the back, uh, you know, back of the line with all the customers. He, he, um, the fact that he filed a lawsuit doesn't get him anything special. Okay. So we're going to try to do the last few questions sort of in a rapid style. Uh, I was wondering, for the state regulator, regulators that are now investigating Celsius, if there's any enforcement action or anything, I'm just wondering how will that affect the bankruptcy? Or, or I don't know if they're just kind of unrelated or what you see there. Depends what they're seeking. Um, bankruptcy stops any attempt to collect money from the debtor. But if the state regulators are seeking, let's say, a cease and desist order or um, something, some sort of 
prohibition on Mashinsky engaging in business in the future, right? That's not stayed by the bankruptcy. They would be able to proceed just in parallel with the bankruptcy then. Okay. And something I was just curious about was a lot of people are taking issue with how both Celsius and Voyager did marketing. It's been called out, for instance, that Alex Mashinsky, the CEO of Celsius, often wore a t-shirt saying, banks are not your friends when, you know, clearly Celsius is like a type of bank. Or the day before they paused the withdrawals, he tweeted at someone who had been saying like, hey, I'm hearing people aren't able to withdraw from your platform. And he tweeted back, do you even know one person who has a problem withdrawing from Celsius? Why spread FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and misinformation? So, you know, things like that versus like Voyager and talking about your funds are like your, your USD is FDIC insured, which now the FDIC is actually investigating this. So, you know, do you see like kind of issues with marketing playing any role? Well, I was going to briefly say I huge, see a huge slew of potential misrepresentation claims across the board. And that, because, because of the way all of these companies operate, right? Um, and I'm not saying just Voyager and Celsius, but also Three Arrows Capital, even Terra. It's basically entirely based on customer trust and confidence. And when you're running out of liquidity to start paying off people, what you see all of these guys do uh, with Celsius, with Voyager, and you go back further with 3AC, um, what from the filings you see sort of Jew and Carl and their employees telling their, their, their uh, counterparties. And then you go back further to Do Quad sort of tweeting, right? What you want to do is you want to try, try and maintain confidence and make sure that people don't all start leaving. Because when they all start leaving, you have a real problem because of the way you have a bank run. But then there's this sort of question of how accurate the information that you sort of put out are in order to stem the bank run. And I think this is a question that will take a while to be decided. There's certainly the possibility of misrepresentation claims. Some of them might be against Celsius and some might be against Mashinsky himself. To the extent that it's a claim against Celsius, I don't think that gets that, that, that changes anything because if you, Celsius already owed you $100,000. How are you harmed by the, the misrepresentation that you didn't yank the money the day before the bankruptcy when it would have been clawed and when it probably would get clawed back anyhow? I don't think it changes what your, your claim is in the bankruptcy. It's sort of like, you know, two, two breaches of contract don't get you anything more than one breach of contract. Where it may be different, though, is if there are misrepresentation claims against Mashinsky himself and where he is personally liable, those would not normally be covered by the bankruptcy. That's not a claim against Celsius. It's a claim against Mashinsky. Presumably, any Celsius bankruptcy plan will have uh, third-party releases in it, which will deem Celsius's customers to have released various third parties, including Mashinsky. But that's going to be a hard-fought issue. And Lurking in the background is U.S. law on the on the on the availability of third-party releases may well change before this bankruptcy is finished, and this is um, this is a really uh, hotly contested issue in uh, Purdue Pharma's bankruptcy with the the Sackler family. There's an appeal pending of that right now, and we could see a, we could very well see a change in the law that would limit uh, Mashinsky's ability to get a release in the Celsius bankruptcy. Hmm. Okay. And I did have people tweeting, asking things like whether any of the co-founders or CEOs of any of these companies, so, you know, Mashinsky or Stephen Ehrlich of Voyager or Kyle and Sue, 
what are the odds that any of these people does need jail time? I knew the question is going to come up. And, <laughs> and, and, and right before this, I went and gave myself a 10-minute primer on what Singapore laws look like when it comes to sort of criminal liability for all this. I'm not that sure about the US, but based on what has actually come out, there's a few ways this plays out. First of all, the Monetary Authority of Singapore has sort of issued a, 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 a reprimand to the Three Arrows founders. Wait, um, and just three. one quick question. So I believe Sue and Kyle are American, but you were saying it's just because Three Arrows was based in Singapore? or They were, they were, they were in Singapore at the time they were doing these things. So uh, presumably Singapore criminal law would apply because they were operating Three Arrows Capital out of Singapore. They were... Um, the MAS, Monetary Authority of Singapore, issued a reprimand to, uh, I think it was Sue and Carl, maybe just Three Arrows, um, saying that they had breached the um, Securities and Futures Act, I believe. The provision referred to potentially carries a jail term of up to two years if convicted. If convicted, that's the, the, the main point. Under the general criminal law, I think in the UK you have it called fraud, but I think in Singapore it just comes as a general category called cheating. And I'm just going to read it out because I have it in front of me. By deceiving any person, whether or not such deception was the sole or main inducement, fraudulently or dishonestly induces the person deceived to deliver or cause the delivery of any property to any person or to consent that any person shall retain any property or intentionally induces the person deceived to do or omit to do anything, which he would not do or omit to do if he were not so deceived and which act or omission causes or is likely to cause damage or harm to any person in body, mind, reputation, or property is said to cheat. So that is a complete mouthful, and sorry for sort of inflicting that on everyone, but essentially, there is a question of whether some of the behavior which you see in the correspondence to the, F- to the affidavit that came out um, from the Triacy liquidators that Sue and Carl may have sort of misled their investors as to the state of the company, as to the state of the finances of Three Arrows Capital and therefore induced these customers to keep their funds within Three Arrows Capital when they otherwise might have put it out. And this is and this sort of comes back to the sort of article we're discussing earlier before this call, right? Where Sue and Carl said the lenders were comfortable for financial position. But the, the fact is, based on everything we've seen from all of the WhatsApp messages and Discord messages and Telegram messages and whatnot. It looks like they just straight up lied about the exposure to terror and their financial position. So there's a question there. But the issue with this criminal stuff is who actually brings the claim? And I Googled this <laughs> and I read through this very briefly. The prosecutor in Singapore is to bring the claim. So the attorney's general chambers is to bring the claim. And they have a discretion as to whether or not to bring it. And this discretion will be based on, you know, how likely things are going to succeed, you know, uh, whether it's public policy, it's, it's the best interest of, of, of yeah, public policy, etc. So the gating mechanism of whether anyone's going to go to jail is whether or not the attorney's general chambers actually decides to prosecute. Okay, yeah. And I think the blockchain letter sort of would be another piece of evidence, or at least that's what they seem to be trying to imply, blockchain.com, in terms of the deception and so maybe, Adam, you can answer for Mashinsky, because I, I believe Stephen Ehrlich probably is Canadian. It, the fact that their citizenship is not going to determine what law applies, right? It, that it, it, so, and 
it's there could be criminal violations potentially in more than one jurisdiction also you've got i think you need to divide this into pre-bankruptcy behavior and behavior in the bankruptcy for pre-bankruptcy behavior three arrows capital yeah there's some indications that there might there may have been there may have been fraud whether that arises to the level of of uh criminal fraud in singapore or in the u.s you know it, there might it might um if you have kind of an underlying fraud that can then be the predicate for wire fraud or mail fraud those would be federal prosecutions i have um i have no idea if there's any interest uh, at this point from the department of justice of even touching this stuff Celsius also, if you know, if you look what's in the Kefi lawsuit, you might, there's some Im- Im- implications of fraud there too. And that, that you know, if I were Mashinsky, I'd be a little concerned about that. And then uh, Celsius has another weird problem. In I think 2018 or 2019, Celsius entered into a consent order with the state of Washington for engaging in unlicensed money transmission, among other things. And the consent order basically Celsius just promised it wouldn't do it wouldn't it wouldn't do that in Washington anymore. And Celsius stopped taking uh, having Washington uh, state of Washington accounts after that. The consent order doesn't really spell out what Washington thought constituted unlicensed the money transmission, but presumably, if it was unlicensed money transmission in Washington, it would also be that in many other states. And Celsius doesn't have a money transmitter license. It is a federal felony to operate. Uh, a money transmission business in the U.S. without a state license, so there may be there may be a, another problem there for Celsius. Again, it would require the Department of Justice to actually think this is worth pursuing, and they may just say, you know, look, we've got plenty of other fish to fry. Why get into this whole crypto area, which is pol- has is politically charged, and you know, let the market sort it out in some way. That's all the pre-bankruptcy. They seem to like doing the crypto cases, in my opinion. But anyway, they like doing the like the the ha- you know the the hacker cases or the you know where it's you know, the money laundering cases. This is different. That's the pre bankruptcy stuff. I don't see anything with Voyager yet that indicates anything other. Than, you know, Voyager just seems stupid, but not criminal. You don't go to jail for being stupid. <laughs> Otherwise, this country would look very different. Uh, <laughs> So, but there's also the what the question what happened in the bankruptcy, the um, if you knowingly and fraudulently conceal assets or books and records related to assets from any basically custodian or officer of the court, that is a bankruptcy crime in the U.S. And that is might be a problem with three arrows, right? If they don't if they don't turn over the um the private keys if that you know that arguably that's knowingly and fraudulently withholding from a custodian or other officer of the court inf- any recorded information related to the property or financial affairs of a debtor that you know you can be looking at up to 5 years of jail time for that the hook for the for, for with the for US law there is that there's this title 15 case that got filed in the Southern District of New York. And Title 15 cases are really meant to just kind of be a mechanism for coordinating bankruptcies that are primarily outside of the U.S. It's a, it's, the main show is not New York, but to the extent there are assets in New York, it, it creates a coordination mechanism. But that's enough to trigger U.S. bankruptcy uh, crime statutes. Given that the, the main show is 
Is, is outside the U.S.? I don't know if anyone's Well, well I'm happy to sort of jump in here because I was just scrolling through this. And yes, there is that there is a cr- criminal offense for dishonest and fraudulent removal or concealment of property to prevent distribution of creditors. So there absolutely is that equivalent in Singapore and we expect most of the rest of the world. So if they start being incredibly, incredibly non-cooperative, um, it, it, it may seem that they, they may have to run off to Dubai or somewhere else just to stay out of jail. Although there is a question of whether there is in Dubai. I don't think Dubai has an extradition treaty with the No, United it doesn't. States. I've looked into this one. It doesn't have an extradition treaty. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know if you saw in the Bloomberg article, they are in the process of moving to Dubai. So what does yes. that say to you? They're worried. Yeah, they want to get away from Singapore. They want to get away from the MAS. Um, they definitely don't want to be in the U.S., they, they just want to be, I mean, Dubai is like the place where you go to if, I mean, it's, it's got a pretty dodgy reputation, right? A little bit. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing that can't be cured by sponsoring some soccer teams. <laughs> okay, then how long do you expect each of these bankruptcies to play out? Two to three years, I think. Yeah, two to three years is probably about right. These are not going to be fast. I mean, it's it's hard to give a real accurate uh, guess at this point, but two to three years, I think, before we see a plan confirmed. Um, how long it takes for all the assets to be fully administered, uh, fully administered, that could take much longer. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the sort of precedent we may have for this is, I mean, just look at the Mount Gox stuff, right? It's taken absolutely years to play out. Um was it 2014 or something? Like way before I even did anything crypto related or knew what crypto was. That's when it, it all happened. And well, on the Mount Gox thing, actually, there's a, there's a fairly interesting point here, given the length of time it took. Because the I, I believe the Bitcoin that was sitting in Mount Gox, the, the, this goes back to the question we were discussing probably close an hour earlier. The, 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 the Bitcoin in there have appreciated massively in value in the last eight years or so. And they actually, it looks like they've actually come to a fair distribution where that there has been some sort of civil rehabilitation proceeding such that the, that such that the creditors seem, seem to be able to enjoy the upside rather than the companies magically becoming solvent, mainly just by Bitcoin price appreciation. So this may be good news for the Triasi creditors. Maybe there is a solution somewhere where you don't get liquidated at 18K when Bitcoin goes to 200K. Or whatever it is we're hoping. Do you think it's likely that Celsius and slash Voyager, or you know, either one of them, will eventually be up and running again as a business? Unlikely. And Wasi lawyer, do you have an opinion? I don't know. It, it depends. They clearly want to. They clearly want to because it's chapter eleven. Um, but I think Adam's comment is coming from yeah the fact that you know you need confidence <laughs> to operate a spec. The, the, it, the filing of eleven, yes, they may want to, but you, you will, even if they, even if Kirkland and Ellis looked at this and said you have no chance of reorganizing, they would still file them for eleven, not for seven. Oh, I see. Okay, last question now. Truly, as you all know, co-founder Suju of Three Arrows Capital said that he was creditor of Three Arrows for five million dollars, and uh, co-founder Kyle Davies' wife Kelly Chen said she was owed sixty-five point seven million. What's the likelihood that Sue and then also Kyle's wife receive anything as creditors? 
To be honest, it depends on the nature of the loan agreement or of this arrangement. Um, it could not be a legitimate loan. It could be just them claiming that they were owed monies because for the, the, the evidence we've seen that's sort of been put out is, you know, a very short email, a document that literally says, okay, we confirmed that we owe you this amount of money. Can a shareholder legitimately be a creditor of a company? Yes. Is this the case? We don't know. Is it likely they're going to be net up out of all this? I really doubt it because we can go into this more detail, but don't we really keep at them with all of the potential clawbacks against Cow and Sue. I could go on all day about it. You know, potentially wrongful trading, fraudulent trading, unfair preferences, which operates in a very similar way to, to, to what Adam described early on. Um, breach of directed duties. There's a whole list and there's the personal claims that are going to be showing up against them as well. So, so, so um, yeah, I think we probably need more information there, but could it be legitimate? Yes. But is it really? We don't know. You know, I don't know enough about uh, British Virgin Island liquidation proceedings to know how, how they would be treated. I can say that in a U.S. bankruptcy case, you know, there is first the question is, do you actually characterize the relationship as a loan, uh, as Wasi lawyer was saying? Or do you, do you say, well, it's actually more like an equity contribution or maybe it's just bullshit and there is nothing there? But even if you say it's a loan, um, you, know, you, you would expect to see insiders in a Chapter 11 case, you'd expect to see um, insider positions classified separately from other Creditor claims and probably subordinated, which means in this case, you know, it would be getting nothing. So, I would expect for Celsius, for example, that Celsius insiders are going to be put in a it would be put in a different class and will get no recovery. That I, I can't imagine Mashinsky walking away with a penny from Celsius. Adam, can I ask you one question, please? I'm sorry, I've been dying yeah. to ask you this question. <laughs> On on the on the Voyager sort of um, sort of draft, the, the way they've sort of set up the the, the creditor classes, is, is there a, where they've segregated account holders from unsecured creditors? Is there a world where you know because of you guys having cross class cram down, do you guys is there a world where account holders say Fuck, no, this is a terrible deal, and the secured creditors hit the right majority and they get a cram down of the plan? Is there a world where that happens? Yes, that the, there you only need one. So bankruptcy voting. There are two ways you can confirm a bankruptcy plan. You can confirm it consensually or with what's called cram down. And that's the plan being crammed down the throats of the non-consenting creditors. We also have a, we have a technique called cram up and you can you imagine what that might be. Um, the, <laughs> with a consensual plan, it's a little bit of a misnomer. It doesn't mean that everyone agrees to it. It means that every class that is impaired has voted for the plan by a requisite majority. Um, a cram down plan, in contrast, needs only a single class voting for the plan. And that single class could even be a class that has one creditor in it, right? There, uh, there are rules on how you can classify creditors. There's some restrictions. Um, but you could have a class, let's say, you know, maybe it's the, uh, maybe it's vendors or maybe it's a class just of small claims that votes for the, that votes for the plan and, and they force it down on everyone else. That's entirely possible. All right. Well, we will have to see how it all plays out. So you guys, this has been an amazing conversation. I so appreciate that you shared your knowledge. Where can people learn more about each of you and your work? Yes. I mean, I'm a hentai anime penguin in a suit. You can follow me on Twitter, Wasi Lawyer. Sometimes I'm also a lawyer. 
So you can you can follow me on Twitter too um, at Adam uh, Leviton, or uh, I also blog at creditslips.org. And otherwise, you can read my scholarship. You can find it on SSRN. Most uh, relevant for this area is a forthcoming article with the very original title of "Not Your Keys, Not Your Coins," uh, but it's all of it's seventy, you know, 70 plus pages of detail about how we might characterize custody relationships with cryptocurrency exchanges and brokers. And that's coming out in um, volume 101 of the Texas Law Review. All right. Well, it has been a pleasure having both of you on Unchained. Awesome. It's been fun to have being here, Laura. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Adam and Wasi, check out the show notes for this episode. Want exclusive access to even more Unchained content? Subscribe to my bulletin newsletter for weekly roundups and interviews you won't see on the podcast. Visit laurashin.bulletin.com. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Matt Pilchard, Juan Aranovich, Pam Majumdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thank you.